Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Today, we're doing something slightly different. We have invited a guest back onto the show who we last had in November. It's Chris Gray, who's a Brexit expert. Chris is Emeritus Professor of Organization Studies at Royal Holloway University. He was previously professor at Cambridge and Warwick Universities. Chris published a book on Brexit called Brexit Unfolded in June 2021 which I would strongly recommend to anybody who wants to understand the mechanics of Brexit, particularly the political context. Chris does a very regular, and I would describe as a fantastic Brexit blog. I would strongly recommend anybody interested in Brexit to sign up for that blog. And on Twitter, you can get Chris at Chris Gray Brexit. So I would strongly recommend that as well. So Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Chris Johns and myself really appreciate you giving us your time and expertise again. To get the discussion going, I would just like to refer back to something you wrote in your blog back in February, where you discussed two scenarios for Brexit. One was uh, at least from a British perspective, one was a gradual move to rapprochement with the European Union, or secondly, ongoing antagonism and an ideological drive to divergence. You said at that stage that you believed whatever would happen with the Northern Ireland Protocol would be a key test and would answer the question, and it's the question I guess I'm going to ask you now, has the Brexit fever been broken by the Windsor framework? And I know today that Rishi Shunak is in Paris meeting Macron, and it is the first bilateral meeting between France and the United Kingdom in five years. 
So that does suggest something positive happening on the political front. First of all, thanks for having me back on again. That's, it's lovely to talk to you guys again. And, uh, and thanks for the generous introduction as well. I think maybe take the last bit of that first, because, of course, the summit with France was already set up and was going to happen anyway, even if they hadn't got the Windsor framework together. So it was, that was sort of all, all, already in the diary. So I won't say it's exactly, I won't say it's exactly coincidental, but we shouldn't necessarily read that as saying, okay, so he got the Windsor framework done and now he's doing the summit with the French because I think he would have been doing that anyway. But those two scenarios, which which actually grow out of the book that you mentioned as well, because I thought that was that, that would be that at some point that would be the kind of the not the end game because there will be no end game the sort of the medium term kind of choice to be made. And on the day that the Windsor framework was announced, I think that I I felt yeah this is a, is indeed a, a fairly kind of clear signal that we're sort of heading for this the first scenario in other words one of kind of rapprochement of a sort of a normalisation of relationships between the UK and the EU and but actually in the in the in the sort of the two weeks that have followed that I sort of feel as if we haven't as if as if, as if it hasn't been as clear cut as that and I think there's a couple of issues to sort of just to be thought about within that I mean one is that I'm thinking now that it seems like a kind of maybe a tactical error that Sunak hasn't doesn't seem to have set any kind of time frame around this and I think the logic of that was probably well you know and he keeps saying you know everyone's got to have a chance to study it and so on and I think the logic of that was meant to be you know I'm not bouncing anyone into something that they don't understand and so on and so forth but in a sense that has kind of ceded a certain amount of kind of power or control to the DUP in particular, and then adjacent to that, the kind of the European Research Group and the sort of the Brexiters and the Tory party. Because the DUP are now saying, well, we're constituting this, I think, group of eight to sort of scrutinise the agreement. And this may not, and this may not even come to a conclusion until, you know, the end of March or maybe even the beginning of April. And similarly, there's no time frame for, you know, Sunak has promised a vote, but he hasn't said when this vote will be, you know, so there's nothing in that sense to sort of concentrate the minds, if you like, of the potential opposition. So that kind of, in a sense, creates a certain degree of drift, I think, because, and in that period, you know, it's possible it may prove to be very wise and it may be that opposition to it disperses and diffuses and, and so on. But equally, it's possible that in that period that the opposition may harm, right? So that's that's one thing. So we sort of, so we would sort of say, yes, of course, we know that he would win a vote in the House of Commons with, with, with Labour's support, but... The, the Windsor framework, it hasn't quite landed at this point, right? So that's, you know, so there's that. And then the second thing, which I wrote about, in, actually I mentioned that point in my blog this morning as well, but the, the second point, which I developed at some length in, in this morning's blog, is that it seems as if there is no real kind of strategic coherence going on here in terms of the different things that the, gov that the British government is doing. So on the one hand, you have this Windsor framework, which seems to point towards this sort of you know, closer or at least more harmonious sort of relationship. But on the other hand, you know, and one of the immediate prizes of that looks as if it was going to be joining Horizon. You know, and, and Ursula van der Leyen in the press conference, uh, uh, the Windsor press conference said, you know, now the door is more or less, you know, there's still a process, but now the door is kind of open. And yet immediately there start being these noises, oh, well, actually, I don't think we want to join Horizon. And then similarly, the government is still pressing ahead with the retained EU law bill, which is what, certainly one aspect of that you could see as being quite threatening towards the EU if it potentially opens up, you know, certainly in principle opens up you know, a route to regulatory divergence. And that would have implications, potentially anyway, for the level playing field aspect of the trade and cooperation agreement. So you've got that. And then, of course, you know, one of the big political stories in, in the UK this week 
has been about the government's new illegal migration bill and the whole small boats issue, which also feeds in with the French trip as well, of course, which is at the very least looks as if it's likely to play play fast and loose with commitment to international law. So if part of what the Windsor framework was about wasn't just normalising things with respect to Northern Ireland, but doing so in a way that moved away from all the stuff about, oh, well, we're going to break the treaty unilaterally, or we're going to, you know, all of those, all of those kinds of, of debates about, 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 about international legality, then things like the, the immigration or the migration bill uh, it seem, seem to go in the opposite direction to that. So I kind of feel as if we're in this kind of, actually, the way I, the, the, the metaphor that I use in, this, in today's blog is, is purgatory. You know that we're sort of in this kind of intermediate state between. Does that make sense? As a, as well, a absolutely, a, Chris. A, and purgatory is something that I think many of our listeners will be able to relate to in, in all sorts of different ways. You mentioned the boats there, which is of particular interest to me today because, of course, the tabloid headlines are that Sunak is in Paris to sort out the small boats issue with the French because he wants them to do more of the hard work of stopping them. So I looked up. I tried to get hold of just how much effort the French have made to date with all of this, because if you read those same sorts of tabloids, the French just, you know, sit sit on their behinds and, and do sweet, sweet FA, frankly, about it. And there was a publication from the House of Commons Library, so a reliable source at the end of December, just gone, which pointed out how much money the UK has given to France for this very issue. And it's tough to track down. They, in their submit a report say just how hard it is to actually find out precisely but they think that since 2014 when this really kicked off in a serious way more than 300 million pounds has been sent from the UK to France to help sort out the boats issue so if they are sitting on their behinds not doing very much that's a lot of money for not much return but the return actually I was surprised by the numbers last year according to this report the French stopped 43% um, of people, and that was 28,000 people from crossing. And they intercepted and destroyed 53.4%, a very precise number, of boats. That was 1,072 boats the French actually stopped. And in the previous year, the report says that about 50% of people and about 50% of the boats were stopped by the French. So I don't know whether you think that's a good return on a 300 million investment, but it struck me that the 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 story, the myth, the the urban myth that we have in this country about the French aren't doing very much is actually false. Would you agree with that? I think I probably would. It's interesting that you cite those figures going back to 2014, because because the spike in in small boat usage is comes a long time after that. So, so actually, a lot of what was going on with the spending of that of that money prior to say. 2019 2020 was to do with was to do with uh, land-based attempts you know so all of the kind of the fortification throughout Calais trying to stop um, it is like a fortress I've driven yeah, through it relatively absolutely. recently it is quite um, extraordinary it, it's it's almost checkpoint Charlie style fortifications it, it, it's incredible and I can remember when they were building that and, 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 go, and going back and forth and, and, and before it was completed and you could see you know, groups of, 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 of refugees or asylum seekers are you know running in and out. Of the, you know, so so anyway, the point is, is that is that is, is that is that the metric here isn't just about uh, is this money stopping small boats because because actually paradoxically one of the things is is that to the extent that the money spent tightening up in relation to the land, rail and road and rail crossing that has then displaced people 
into coming on the small boats, right? So, so, so the spike in small boats that happened in I think two thousand nineteen, two thousand and twenty, and since then isn't a wouldn't be a sign of the failure of the money being spent. It's actually paradoxically, it's it's a sign of the success. And then, as you say, you've then got these figures now about about stopping. I mean, I, I, mean, I have to say, personally, I feel kind of uncomfortable with all of the kind of the discourse around this and, and and quite what we would think success and failure meant. Really, I mean, some of this is to do with a failure of the UK government to provide safe routes for people to actually go through. Uh, the other issue, which is a very much a Brexit-related issue, and which is highlighted by a recent report by Professor Tom Brooks of Durham University, and, and, and he makes the strong case that actually the, the, the spike in small boats, which comes after the end of the transition period, biggest numbers afterwards, um, and he sort of says, well, this is actually attributable to Brexit in the sense that the UK no longer participates in the Dublin Three regulations. So, so Brexiters kind of reject that, and they kind of say, "Well, but actually, the numbers, the numbers who were who." So, the, the key issue here, sorry, just to, for people who don't understand or are familiar with it, the issue is the particular issue is the, that of returning an asylum seeker to to have their claim assessed in the first safe country that they reached within the European Union or within the signatories to the Dublin framework. And that's not the same and is often conflated with the idea that asylum seekers themselves should seek asylum in the first safe country that they reach. That, that is not what, that, that there's, there is no onus on the asylum seekers. It's an administrative thing in terms of participating countries where the case will be considered. Anyway, Tom Brooks argues, and says, you know, that once Britain left the Dublin regulations, then that then created an incentive for people smugglers to direct asylum seekers towards the UK in the knowledge that they could that they could not any longer be returned to the first safe country that they had reached, and therefore there would be you know so there's, so there's, there's so there's kind of multiple kinds of of, of strands to this, and of course the other aspect of all this that we shouldn't forget is that the numbers here actually are really in global terms, quite small. In fact, even in European terms, quite small in as much as both Germany and, and, and France both process and accommodate, um, you know, much higher numbers. And in a sense, if you say, well, you know, if you create a sort of situation where almost anyone who arrives in the UK, then by, by definition is, is, is being treated as, as not having a right to claim asylum. So the whole thing is a kind of, a, in one level, it's a mess. But at another level, it's a massively overblown mess, and I think is not. If it's a crisis for anyone, it's a crisis for these. You know, it's a crisis for these poor buggers who are, risk, who are risking their lives on the, on the on, on, on the water. It's not. Chris Sunak stood up in the House of Commons this week and said that stopping the small boats was his priority. It's one of his five tests of the success of his administration, and he said, moreover, more importantly than that, it's the people's priority. Why do you think we are so bent out of shape? Because a lot of people do talk about these small boats. They are regularly headlines in the tabloid press. And it is a big deal in this country for a significant chunk of the population. And the facts of the matter are exactly as you stated. Relative to other countries, we don't have that many refugees or asylum seekers here. We don't have that many coming, trying to come here. And in context those of us that are data-driven would say it's not a big deal. As you say, it's a really big deal for the people concerned. But the UK does not, in a data-driven international context, have a particular problem. It doesn't have a big problem at all, actually. 
what is it? Is it some weird psychological thing? Is it something that is whipped up by the popular press? Is it something that we can understand? But we seem to be bent out of shape by it. Do you have any views as to why that is the case? Why Sunak has made it one of his priorities when he could easily have taken a different strategic path and explained it isn't a big deal. It's not that important. It's not that quantitatively a big deal. And, and asking the British people, telling the press, stop, stop with this nonsense. It really isn't that big a deal. But I mean, I think you know this is this is this is part of the same old, old story of which Brexit is also a kind of a part, which is that it, it, clearly it, you know it does matter to a group of voters, and it's a group of voters who are potentially the Tory base, the young Tory base voters. As with Brexit and many other things, a lot of this is about the Conservatives looking over their shoulders at well, you, you know, at, currently at the Reform Party, you know, the the, the inheritor to the Brexit Party, and, and, and as they used to look to UKIP before, because you know if you think about this small votes thing, this was not actually. Uh, a big news story until there was a sort of period when, you know, when Nigel Farage was pushing this really, really hard and was going down and hanging around on beaches in Dover and other places and, you know, taking kind of photographs of people and, and, and gradually him and obviously not just him, but, you know, others as well, were you know, pushing it up, the you know, pushing it up the news agenda. And so then I think, leaving aside the morality of all this, if we think about the political calculation of it for Sunak, you know, then he knows that lots of people, you know, both within his own party and outside it, you know, that, that that is the kind of the gallery that he is that he is playing to. And as for the issue about, you know, oh, well, the numbers actually are not that kind of large and so on and so forth. Again, it's very sort of similar to the issue about the, the issue about attitudes to, to immigration generally. You know, I mean, I mean, one of the problems with all this debate is that, including within, within Brexit, is that quite different things, immigration, freedom of movement, refugees and asylum seekers, all got conflated together into one, one as if this was all kind of one sort of issue. You know, coming back to Brexit, you know, one of the one of the reasons why I think that the referendum being held at that particular time was so unfortunate was because it was it was constantly being overlaid with these kind of images of of refugees and asylum seekers, kind of you know trying to break down wire fences to get into southeastern Europe from from Syria and you know, so on and so forth, which was nothing at all to do with the issue of freedom of movement, right? So you know, but got conflated. But just to skip back a bit, I would say that the voting areas which are most concerned about immigration, and I don't think this is just in the UK, are the areas where immigration is actually the lowest. And so the issue, so we can't really understand the issue in terms of, of the numbers of the data. In now, I'm talking about the numbers of asylum seekers, because it's not most people will there will, will be no direct impingement of this on their actual lives at all, you know, until it becomes you know, and then you get things you know whipped up and gangs and crowds of of people trying to attack you know hotels where asylum seekers are lodged and so on and so forth so but i mean it's clearly not just uk i mean you know if you look at the discourse of this in france it's not very wonderful in italy it's not very wonderful i mean germany is an interesting and kind of complex case around that and ireland you know i mean i don't know so jim would have more to say about that i guess yeah i mean that there's been a more vocal opposition to immigration and it's obviously been highlighted by the Ukraine situation. Uh, but definitely, there, you know, there is that underlying sense here as well that it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And if I was asked six months ago, I would have said it was very much a fringe thing. But it is becoming slightly more mainstream as such. So, yeah, it, it is a, a deep, deep concern. But Chris, 
looking at the importance of sort of political personality in all of this, and particularly in the context of the future of Brexit, um, this never-ending saga, which is never going to end. The, the the Windsor framework, it strikes me that the operational modifications that were made in that actually could have happened over the last couple of years since the Northern Ireland Protocol was agreed. But presumably because of people like Boris Johnson and David Frost, that was never going to happen. So Sunak has, you know, he's he seems to be creating a more working relationship approach with the European Union. We've got the Windsor framework. So do you, do, you, do you think that because of the change of personalities that something fundamental has changed? And, and I guess if you extrapolate forward, if Keir Starmer was the next prime minister, you know, where does the process go from there? Because from an Irish perspective, the, the economic relationship with Northern Ireland and with Great Britain is incredibly important for all sorts of reasons. So we're, we're interested. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, it's always interesting this thing about personalities because because there's an interplay here, isn't there? Which is that I think that you could say that in any sort of rational or objective analysis that the strategic interests of both the UK and the European Union and Ireland, the strategic interests of all of these are towards uh, towards good relations and, 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 and both in tone and, and in content. And so the issue then becomes whether the, the politics and the personalities kind of, you know, lines up, if you like, with those sort of strategic kinds of objectives. And, and you know, yes, I think Sunak's do more and Starmer lines up more with that kind of, just as personalities of sort of, you know, of, of what Brexiters would, would disparagingly call technocrats, you know, but actually to, to te- technocracy could be quite usual, uh, quite, quite useful. And again, we can see that as a personality type, uh, Macron, as I would say, you know, has, has quite a lot of similarities to, you know, to Sunak and to, you know, these are sort of like, you know, professional kind of, if I can say in a certain way, kind of sensible people. So far as, as Sunak is concerned, you know, I mean, nonetheless, personality only takes you so far because he is still shackled to this party. And he's not really strong enough. You know, many of whom, even within his party, you know, he obviously came to the leadership because the trust thing imploded. He wasn't he wasn't voted for, you know, by the party membership. There are many conservatives who regard him as as not being a true conservative, as being what as being what Richard Tice, the Reform Party leader, calls a consocialist. So he isn't really. I don't think he's really politically strong enough to. We could. I don't think we I, to say that he is now going to be able to deliver 
this rapprochement scenario. You know, I mean, you know, clearly he's clearly he's going to take take try to take things more in that kind of direction. But you know, he d- despite this kind of technocracy or however I just you know described him, he isn't averse to talking about. Uh, in, in relation to the small boats and, and, and migrations, he's not averse to talking about lefty lawyers, you know, uh, who are out of touch with the people, as Chris, you know, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was talking about just now. And so he's he is also, I don't know to what extent he really, you know, as a, as a person likes or believes in that kind of language, but he's certainly very willing to mobilise it. So in that sense, you know, I, I think he's not so clear cut on the uh, and on the operational kinds of issues coming back to the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, it seems to me that what has been agreed goes as far as it possibly could in an operational sense to you know, to smoothing out, you know, the functioning of the protocol. And and ultimately, the issue here comes down to the fact that, you know, for a group of Brexiters, and clearly for many in the DUP, they have never accepted the basic premise that there needs to be a protocol at all. Because they have never accepted the basic premise that there needs to be a border at all, right? And, and in that sense, all this sort of talk about, oh, well, we're studying the fine print to see what it all means. This is all just sort of, smoke and mirrors because 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 they know very well that in terms of their purest political dogma the unionists is obviously somewhat different to the brexiters but but in terms of the dogmas about both sovereignty and about the union in the case of the unionists then it's clear that from a purist perspective it doesn't satisfy what they want so the issue is only do they feel politically strong enough to hold out and you know i said last time i was on this program uh, on this part of this podcast, I, you know, I, I said, you know, the last thing I would claim to be as an expert in Northern Irish politics, and I think you both both of you said that, you know, that the, the, you know, that was Didn't not a unusual kind of thing. But but my understanding currently is that is that basically what is going on within the DUP is, you know, there is a split on this, a split between those who, you know, those who want to hold out for purity and those who want to be so we call it the pragmatic and that also that for them as for other politicians there's a complex kind of electoral calculus here because on the one hand keeping the power sharing institutions collapsed even for many of their supporters is very unpopular uh, and it's knock-on effects in terms of not being able to you know address all kinds of other kind of political issues non you know non-serious non-brexit kind of issues but they've also got breathing down their necks you know the the the, the more hardline or more purist kinds of union groups, the union voice, so on and so forth. And so I guess what's going on is it's not a conversation about are our principles satisfied? It's a conversation about 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 whether or not to hold out on them. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's always struck me about the Brexit process, sorry, Jim, to, to, uh, just one last question about Northern Ireland from me, was that I, I saw Sammy Wilson, a DUP member, being interviewed. I think it was on Newsnight. And he said quite plainly, in very simple terms, that GB trades with the EU outside the single market now. It is still able to trade with the EU. It, it Trade hasn't gone to zero. And we want exactly the same trading arrangements with the EU that GB has. That wasn't an unreasonable thing to say. But one of the things that's always struck me about this, and it, which is why it's so good to talk to an expert and wonder whether you have the same feeling that I do, that both politicians and journalists on this particular episode was an example of what I'm talking about, 
fail to then ask the obvious questions. And the failure to ask the obvious questions or to make the obvious points suggests that we still haven't gotten across the detail of what all of this means. Because the implication of what Sammy Wilson said, of course, because what he said was true, that Northern Ireland, it could be decided that Northern Ireland trades with the EU in exactly the same way that GB does. But that logically then requires the border on the island of Ireland. But that point wasn't made. And nobody ever seems to be able to get across these very, very important details of the Brexit process about the logical implications of what it is that you've just said. Do you, do you get as frustrated as I do with this? Well, I do. And, 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 and I would sort of extend that by sort of saying that what is so bizarre is the failure of Brexiters to understand that when their whole basic shtick economically is to say, we want to set our own tariffs and we want to set our own regulations. And so then the question is, never mind about the EU, says, so what? So, so in what territory do you want to do that? And so definitionally within the Brexit desire is the creation of a regulatory border and a tariff border, and, and, and also there's not quite the same thing—a customs border. So, it, so it's built into the kind of it's built into in, into the logic of that. Now, of course, this is all very complicated from the point of view of the of the I understand from the point of view of the unionists, because you know, of course, the DUP didn't didn't want you know didn't support the Good Friday Agreement in the first place, um, and and doesn't see it as anathema to have a land border in the way that, you know, um, and so... That's, and so, that's I think, an important point, Chris, that it, they, they're not called out on this enough, in my opinion. I don't have an axe to grind. I don't live in Ireland anymore, so please don't think I have a particular axe to grind on this one or the other. But I think the subtext of everything that, that we have just said and in the round, everything that is said by the DUP in particular, again... The journalist, the, 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 the proper journalist should eyeball Sammy Wilson and people like Sammy Wilson say, well, you actually want a border on the island of Ireland, don't you? It's not just a logic of your position that, and you don't realise the logic of your position. Let's please be honest about what it is that you're saying and that you don't mind. You wouldn't care less if there was a border. I think that's an important point that you just made there. Jim, I know that you were going to say something there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a fundamental issue here with the DUP that they will never accept a Sinn Féin first minister. That's the you subtext. Know, that, that, that's the subtext. But So you think it's a pretext? I do indeed, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Because I, I would have argued, um, and as Chris Johns there would tell you, I would never profess to be have any expertise in Northern Ireland, but obviously I have to be as interested as I can in it as a topic because I can never understand Northern Ireland politics. But it struck me, my interpretation after Northern Ireland Protocol was that this is the best of both worlds for Northern Ireland economically, you know, free access to the UK market and to the single European market. And the Windsor framework has I I think improved that if anything and indeed Sunak was in Belfast the day after the signing of the Windsor framework you know arguing just how unique a position Northern Ireland was now in with free access to both markets and so on and as I listened to him speaking it just struck me da you know this is where the UK was pre-Brexit well it seems bizarre I mean, yes, I mean, I agree that you know, and that point has been made. You know, if, you know, 
quite a few times about sort of well well if this is you know if having both markets is so good then then, then you know where's the logic of Brexit and it's interesting because I mean going back a couple of years when the, when when the protocol was first agreed and Michael Gove was pushing that line very strongly the best of both worlds the best of both worlds and people began to ask that question and then there were all, all the rows about the protocol and all the rest of it and, and that question got lost but of course now it's resurfaced again but I would just make one kind of um, rider to what you said which i think has has some importance which is that of course we are only talking about being in the single market for goods in northern ireland and i, I mean this the same logic economically applies right you say well you know if it's good to be in the single market for 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 goods then it's going to be in your market for services as well um but they are but but you know so so but i would say firstly even for northern ireland this is suboptimal right you know compared with um, and I also think that's worth saying in another context, which is that often lurking around these debates is the question about potential Irish unification or reunification. And many people make the argument correctly that the, and this is clearly one of the things that the unionists are concerned about, that um, that the effect is to integrate Northern Ireland economy more closely with Ireland. Uh, and therefore, you know, economically sort of create a kind of an economic unification, which potentially put you. Know, but it's also worth saying that because of the services thing, there's also going to be dis, you know, diversions or disunification of the Irish and Northern Irish economies because of the fact that, for example, if you are a company in Belfast wanting to hire an architect, it's now much easier to hire a London-based architect than it is to hire a Dublin-based architect because you don't have mutual recognition of qualification. You know, so that is is going to sort of push things in, 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 in a different kind of direction. There is a hope, Chris, that mutual yes. recognition will now happen as part of the rapprochement. Do you think that's possible, likely? Well, I mean, I mean, I think that is going to if that's going to be profession by profession. I think it's it's a complicated area. I'm not sure. I mean, certainly, mutual recognition qualifications is one of the things that's been talked about as something that could be uh, because there is there is there is there is some degree that that could be a part of a deepening of the TCA. Because because the other thing within all of this, which is important to understand, is that. I mean, we we talked about the Windsor framework and to some extent talking about it in terms of the improvement of the tone of relations. So there's three legs here. One is uh, Northern Ireland and those arrangements for Northern Ireland. The second is the tone. And then the third is what the tone might lead to in terms of new institutional relationships. And I thought it was it was very interesting that actually in the text of the political declaration of the Windsor framework, it talked explicitly about make it about about maximize uh, well i can't remember the exact quote but along the lines of maximizing the potential of what could be done within the trade and cooperation agreement so in other words what i'm saying here is that irrespective of tone there is an actual process here right which potentially can make a better kind of relationship so i thought that was interesting but what i think was also interesting about that in terms of uk politics and and, and, and Jim was mentioning about you know the possibility of a future a future Starmer presidency, is that there now seems to be no difference between Sunak's position. Maybe other Tories are not the same, but between Sunak's position and Labour's position, because if you think about what what what, what Labour's position is basically to sort of say, well, we will sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol, we will improve the tone of the relationship, we'll deepen the trade and cooperation agreement, we'll do things like participating in Horizon, you know, blah blah blah. blah. There's very little that, they, that Labour seem to be suggesting. The, the only thing that you might say, but it becomes very complicated to understand this, um, is 
they are still talking about the possibility of a veterinary agreement. That's kind of interesting because potentially that uh, that unlocks the protocol thing a bit more, right? But, but there's a lot of slippage here because because there are different kinds of veterinary agreements, right? And it's widely understood that, that what people call a Swiss-style veterinary agreement would mean dynamic alignment of SPS regulations, sanitary and phytosanitary regulations, which would be very beneficial for Northern Ireland and also actually for the rest of GB. But that means following EU alignment, and ultimately it means a role for the European Court of Justice. Now, if that is what Starmer means then that is distinctive. But every time that they actually talk about it, they say, well, we could have this because after all, New Zealand has got this this kind of agreement. But the New Zealand agreement is an equivalence agreement. It's not an alignment agreement. And the New Zealand deal is the one that actually David Frost and Boris Johnson proposed to the EU and the EU rejected. And that's principally because the scale of the the scale of the agricultural trade is so much greater in relation to GBNI than it is in relation to UK New Zealand. Okay, so if so if Labour really mean we want a New Zealand style equivalence thing, then they're not going to get it, and their policy is no different to the Tories. If they mean it's a Swiss style agreement, then they're not coming out and saying that and saying what its implications are. But it's equally possible, and you know, having written about Brexit for so long. Uh, and you alluded to it as well, and you when you talk about, about about journalist questions on, I really, really wonder how many people, you know, even you know, professional politicians who ought to know about these, really actually understand what they're talking about in terms of these different things. You know, um, trade trade negotiations, trade generally, but certainly trade negotiations are mind-numbingly complex affairs, and trade experts are a, an unusual breed. I follow quite a few and read the stuff that they put out. It's incredibly complicated. So in a way, I'm not surprised people aren't across the detail. But I think the implication of what you're saying is that they really should make the effort to be across the detail. Particularly um, by this time, you know. Yes, I mean, after so long. And by the way, that point, to, I'm not a trade expert, that, that point I'm just talking about is not, you know, is not somewhere in the deep weeds of obscure trade knowledge. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's somewhere between you know, everyday knowledge and, and obscurity. So, uh, yeah, it, it's... it's um... Chris, could, could I ask you one final question, if I may? The implications for Scottish independence following the Windsor framework and also the change of the guard in the SNP? Yes, well, if there's, if there's one thing that I would be less confident talking about than Northern Irish politics, it's probably Scottish politics. I mean, it was very interesting that the 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 SNP's response to the Windsor framework was very much what we've just been talking about, which is you know, which was the single market thing and saying, well, you know, if Northern Ireland can have this, then 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 the, the, you know, the, then why not Scotland? And that was coming from the the leader of the SNP in the in in Westminster. Clearly, we've always felt that the, the dynamic ever since the referendum was going to be to put a boost on the, on the Scottish independence. But now it, that seems less clear cut to me. And clearly, the different candidates, you know, or clearly the SNP itself, is is kind of having this this kind of internal debate that's bound up with the leadership contest about you know what is the strategy towards independence and and, and and so on and so forth. And actually, I suppose the other thing is that the longer the Brexit saga has gone on the more, in a way, it has become 
clear that precisely the, the damages that Brexit shows us make perhaps Scottish independence look less attractive in terms of what it might potentially mean for a border between England and uh, England and Scotland. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, and, and I may say deeply ironic, to hear Brexiters who are against English Brexiters who are opposed to Scottish independence wheeling out as all of the reasons against Scottish independence, precisely the things that they denied in relation to Brexit. But in other words, what I'm kind of saying is that both in terms of the changes going on within Scottish politics, which, you know, we don't know where they're going to go, and I certainly wouldn't want to wouldn't want to claim to know anything about that. Um, but there's alongside that, it's no longer perhaps quite as clear-cut as it was that Brexit for voters in Scotland, if it came to an independence referendum, for example, that whether Brexit actually says to them, uh, yes, all the more reason to leave the UK, or whether it says to them all the more reason to stay in. So, yeah, so I think that's 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 perhaps more up in the air than it seemed, uh, or less more less kick up than it seemed five or six years ago. Chris, we've gone well over the allotted time, and I just want to thank you for for giving us so much of your time. We've also left tons of stuff on the table, which hopefully we'll. We'll get to next time we have you on, if you're kind enough to come back. So it just falls to me to say thank you very, very much for coming on the pod to remind all our listeners that Chris is an author of books about Brexit and writes a weekly blog, both of which Jim and I are avid followers and we can recommend to everybody. So thanks very much, Chris, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks. I thanks second that, Chris. Thanks thank you very much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 